Last week was Independence Day, and so we put our series through John on hold for our annual God and Country Rally. And if you missed it, I'd like to encourage you to take the time to listen to it, please. I, I do believe it's worth your time to listen to it. Not because it's me, but I believe the material was sound. Um, for today, let's return to our series, Through the Gospel, according to John, by going to John chapter 21. We're going to read verses 1 through 14 again this week. The Bible says, After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and on this wise showed he himself. There were together Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two other of his disciples. Simon Peter saith unto them, I go a fishing. They say unto him, We also go with thee. They went forth and entered into a ship immediately, and that night they caught nothing. But when the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said unto them, Children, have ye any meat? They answered him, No. And he said unto them, Cast the net on the right side of the uh, ship, and ye shall find. They cast therefore, and now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved saith unto Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he girt his fisher's coat unto him, for he was naked, and then cast himself into the sea. And the other disciple came in a little ship, for they were not far from land, but as it were two hundred cubits, dragging the net with fishes. And as soon as they were come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid thereupon, and bread. Jesus saith unto them, Bring of the fish which ye now have caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of great fishes, a hundred and fifty and three. And for all there were so many, yet was not the net broken. Jesus saith unto them, Come and dine. And none of the disciples durst ask him, Who art thou, knowing that it was the Lord? Jesus then cometh and taketh bread, and giveth them, and fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus showed himself to his disciples. After that, he was risen from the dead. Amen. We saw last time in verses 3 through 6, how the Lord had brought these men to a place of provision. They needed something that they didn't have. They labored all night, yet they had nothing to show for it. And this need for this provision is how Jesus was going to man manifest His ability to provide for them. So long as they obeyed His command. Jesus shows up and He says, Cast your net on the right side of the ship and ye shall find. And they could have easily decided not to listen to this man. They have labored all night. They were experienced fishermen. They were mechanically sound and they knew what they were doing. Nevertheless, they obeyed and they had closed a great multitude of fishes. And we saw that in their obedience they obtained an abundance. And I think this is the picture of us so many times. We are mechanically sound in what we do. We do things properly, but so many times we come up empty. We still have empty nets. And when we, do the, when we try to live the Christian life without the Lord's presence, without our eyes on Him, then it's going to be in vain. Because we need God's presence. We need His Spirit to come down. We need to make sure we're staying focused on why it is we're even here today. 
We're very mechanically sound. We know what we're doing as a church. But are we seeing results? And I believe many times we don't need to change what we're doing. We just need to get back into the Lord's presence. How many times have we been guilty of laboring without Him? But once we are in His presence, we need to try again as He leads. It's the same thing mechanically. They're still letting down the net the same way. Casting it however they were fishing. They're still doing it mechanically the same way. But this time, with the Lord's presence and the Lord's help, they see great blessings. And I think that's a lot of our Baptist churches. I think we are mechanically sound. I think we're fundamentally sound. But why are we coming up empty? All right, that was last week. Now, when they enclosed this great multitude of fishes, we see in verse 7 that the disciple whom Jesus loved said unto Peter, It is the Lord. You may remember as we covered in John chapter 19, the disciple whom Jesus loved is John. He's the one who is the penman of this account, which is why you will hear people refer to the apostle John as John the Beloved, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And we saw in chapter 13 that John sat where others didn't sit. He was leaning upon Jesus' bosom. Then in chapter 19, we saw how John stood where others didn't stand when he was standing at the cross on crucifixion day. And now we see that John can see what others don't see. Here we find that it is John the Beloved who first recognizes this man on the shore as being Jesus. And I don't think it's because John had better eyesight than the other disciples. I don't think that's why he recognized him before the others. But I believe it's because John had the spiritual eyesight to recognize the situation, what was taking place. And it was for this reason that John recognized Christ first. He had cultivated a very close relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Start talking to me. Amen. It's going to be a long day. And we got to get these kids on the road. These men, they were all in the same circumstances. But there was only one who recognized Jesus. How is it that two people can walk through the same valley of adversity in their life? One gets claimed down in the valley and drops out. And the other comes through that exact same circumstance, still walking with God, pressing on. How is that possible? It's because one had a closer relationship with the Lord. It's really that simple. We don't have to overcomplicate the Christian life. One's just closer with God. One cultivated a close relationship, while the other was only casually following the Lord. One took the time to be with the Lord in prayer, Bible study, while the other didn't make the time. One was faithful in church, while the other never really saw the importance of faithfulness. Do you remember the two houses that Jesus spoke about at the end of Matthew chapter 7? One house was built upon a rock by a wise man. The other house was built by a foolish man upon the sand. But what's interesting about those two houses is they both went through the exact same storm. In both cases, the rains descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon those houses. The house built upon the sand experienced a great fall. But the house built upon the rock withstood the storm. Same storm, 
two different outcomes. One was wise, one was foolish. One walked with the Lord, one didn't. One wholeheartedly followed the Lord, the other didn't. One took time to pray and read their Bible and went and all those things. The other one didn't. The foolish man never builds a strong relationship with the Lord. And his walk with God shifts like the sand. While the wise man builds a solid relationship with the Lord and his walk with God is stable like a rock. Listen, none of us are immune to storms of life. Live long enough, you'll go through them. So I don't want to go through any storms. You better die now. None of us are immune to them. We're going to have storms in our life. All of us go through very deep valleys. All of us go through some turbulent waters. But how you weather the difficulties will come down to how firm your relationship with God is. So what kind of a walk are you developing with the Lord today? Because the storm's coming. If you come out of one, don't worry, there's another on the way. How about we apply this to those going to Bible camp this week? How is it that all of us who are going can go to the same camp, out of the same church, listen to the same messages, and see two totally different results? How is that possible? It's because some of these teens want to hear from heaven and some maybe not so much. For some, they'll be blessed. Others will act like it was a complete waste of time. And simply put, some have a closer walk than others. Listen, you know this when you preach for any amount of time that you see two different results. I can get called and blessed out on one phone call and the very next can be, man, that was terrific. Wow, what did he hear that he didn't hear? Some will go to camp wanting to hear from heaven. Some are going to be dialed into the preaching. Some are praying for the Lord to work in their heart and their lives. Some are going to leave the world behind them to be ready to receive. The difference we see in a person's walk with God isn't because one over here has had it so much better in life than this one over there. That's what the world wants you to believe. But that's not the case because we all go through storms. The difference we see is one nurtured a close walk with the Lord. Some will decide to be so close to Jesus they can lean upon His bosom at supper time. While others are arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Some will stand with Jesus at the cross when all others have fled. Some will see Jesus while others are still blind. And to our campers, I would ask you, are you spiritually ready for camp? Are you desirous to have a deeper relationship with the Lord? You're going to get out of camp what you put into it. Now back to our text. It could be the reason John recognizes the Lord is because this event in his mind takes him back to Luke chapter 5. I believe these two accounts are tied together. In Luke chapter 5, they had also told all night they caught nothing. Jesus said unto Simon, launch out into the deep, let down your nets for a draft. And Simon answering said unto him, Master, we have told all the night, taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. When they had done this, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes. It's over there in Luke chapter 5 that Jesus calls them to become fishers of men. 
They forsook all to follow our Lord. And now here they are again in the same vicinity. And this is where Jesus is going to reassure them that they are not just to be fishermen, but they are to be fishers of men. And I believe we should never forget our past experiences. Because God can use those times in our present to remind us of who the Lord still is. They went through a similar situation over there in Luke chapter 5, three and a half years earlier. And I believe in John's mind, no doubt, this would have taken him back to that time. And I believe we have to remember those past experiences because when we come back through another situation, we need to know that it's the same Lord back then as the same Lord today. And sometimes God brings us through very similar circumstances. We, we, maybe we went through them three and a half years ago. Maybe we've already been through it. And God, why are you bringing me through this again? Because God's trying to remind you. I'm still in control. I control the empty net. I control the full net. And you just need to trust me, listen to me, obey me. Don't forget your past experiences. Next we see in our text, after John recognizes the man on the shore is Jesus, Peter grabs his fisher's coat, wraps it around him, and then jumps in the water. Now, before I go any further, I need to address this issue of nakedness. Listen, Lisa, I don't go looking to preach these things, okay? I really don't like when the Lord puts these things on my heart because I don't want to have to tell you some of the things I'm about to tell you. Are we all good? Okay, I'm not the epitome of class and how to dress. You'll see right after service, I'm putting on my overalls and flip-flops to drive down there. So, would you just bear with me for a minute? I'm just going to take advantage of the text. I'm going, to, I'm going to address some things. In the Bible, there are various meanings for being considered naked. Biblically speaking, naked can mean anything from an absence of outer garments all the way to your birthday suit. And you have to allow the context to direct you. When the Bible speaks of shame associated with nakedness, it's speaking of revealing one's secrets when it begins to connect shame and nakedness. In the Garden of Eden, for example, before sin entered the world, the Bible says that Adam and Eve were both naked and they were not what? Ashamed. They were not ashamed. But once sin had entered the world and they had fallen, the Bible says that they knew that they were naked and they tried to cover themselves. Right? They sewed together figs. Why did they feel the need to do that? Because now there was shame associated with nakedness. And I've got to tell you, and again, please bear with me, okay? Can, can I just have a pass today? Like, can you still come back next week and think I'm still a nice guy? I've I got to tell you, I, I, I'm amazed at how divisive the issue of dress is. It's already tense. But listen, I, nothing seems to get people fired up like dress. Before one gets ticked off over dress standards, and you take it out on the pastor, and you leave a good church, you should really investigate what the Bible says first. And again, I don't go looking for this. Amen. L listen, for those of you who visit, this is not like my, my platform issue, okay? I really could give a rip. Anyway, okay. When Moses was on the mountain, the Bible says, speaking of the children of Israel, that Aaron had made them naked unto their shame. Therefore, there must be a nakedness which is not unto shame. Are you following my reasoning here? He made them naked unto shame. Which kind of tells me you can have a form of nakedness, but not unto shame. For sure, there are different classifications for nakedness biblically. So I believe the question we ought to be asking is, when is nakedness considered wrong in the sight of God? 
it doesn't matter my opinion. Because listen, the shock value's out. It's over. And listen, we've already lost the issue. I'm not even trying to regain an issue here. The issue's lost. You could show up in here naked and it would not even shock me. Is everybody with me? The shock value's gone. There used to be a time when the house of God was respected to where that we wouldn't even think that that would happen. But it wouldn't surprise none of us if it happened. Because that's the day in which we live. So when is it wrong in the sight of God? Let me give you my opinion. I think it's a grounded opinion. You can do with this as you see fit, but it's just provoking thought. Would you listen to Isaiah 47? In Isaiah 47, verses 2 and 3, the Bible says, Take the millstones and grind the mill. Uncover thy locks, make bare the leg, uncover the thigh, pass over the rivers, thy nakedness shall be uncovered, yea, thy shame shall be seen. So it seems like to me from that passage that nakedness begins to start when one begins to uncover their thighs. Once you get higher than that, your shame is seen, right? Everybody following this? Which we know is wrong. So at a minimum, I think we might could put it this way in our modern terms. It would be considered immodest to begin the process of revealing one's thighs. Definitely considered naked for your shame to be seen. In Exodus chapter 20, God spoke of making altars of earth that they make burnt sacrifice upon. And, and God said in Exodus 20, 26, Neither shalt thou go up by steps unto mine altar, that thy nakedness be not discovered thereon. Because everyone in those days wore robes. I think that would be glorious, but that's a whole other thing. Now I would be considered transgendered or something, but I think it would be pretty comfortable. But anyway, they, they wore robes. And so if you climb stairs in the presence of anybody, you could look up and see more than you should. God took this issue so seriously that when the priests were ministering in their office, they were expected to put on linen breeches. Breeches. Linen breeches underneath their robes. And according to 20, uh, Exodus 28.42, the breeches would extend from the loins even down unto the thighs they shall reach, lest they bear iniquity and die. Therefore, the question in context is, is it nakedness to uncover your thighs or only your secrets? Were the breeches to cover the thighs because the thighs were considered naked or because that was extra protection to guard against seeing something you shouldn't in one's shame? That's a question I'll leave you to ponder for yourself. So to be safe, most who are trying to maintain some level of holiness for those who stand in the pulpit, those who get up to minister before the people in the place of God, churches like that will have a standard like ours where women's dress should come down to the bottom of the knee. Why? Because the Bible talks about when you begin to uncover your thigh, it's at least immodest, if not nakedness in the sight of God. Trust me, I don't want to have to say these things right now. I believe there is wisdom in taking precaution that God considers God's opinion, not mine. I think there's wisdom in taking precaution that that's what God would consider when you begin to uncover your thigh. And, and to be able to say, to, to have that safety net, to be able to say at that point, we're starting to approach, if not already at, nakedness before God. 
So let's have wisdom in taking the precaution that at least a modesty, if not nakedness, starts at that point. And certainly when the secrets are revealed, you're naked before God. But, and listen, I'm just simply giving you God's a couple of these passages here. I, I want to tell you, what you wear outside of here, I don't care. I, I do care in that I'm your pastor. But I don't care. I hope you understand what I'm saying. I, I, I'm not into this whole, you got to wear this down to this length and you can't wear this material and it's got to be you know, flowing. It's got to be Whatever you do. Because I don't want people telling me I can't wear my overalls. My overhauls, Brother Long. If you're from the hills of Tennessee, it's overhauls. I have my opinions. I have my personal convictions. I'm not going to demand how you ought to dress. I'm certainly not here to impose how you dress in your homes. You know, Dad, you're the, you're the priest of your home. I personally believe one should dress for the occasion. Just my opinion. I've always had it with my daughter. I'm not going to tell her, sorry, you can't jump on a trampoline, honey, like the boys are because you have to wear a dress. I just wasn't going to do that. And y'all can hate me for that if you want. But I would say, honey, you go in there and you put on, you know, proper pair of pants, go jump on the trampoline. It doesn't bother me. Okay, so I just want you to know where my heart's at. That stuff, I believe you dress for the occasion. I don't want to be one of these goofy youth groups that go on a snow skiing trip and everybody's got skirts on over their snow bibs. Now, from what I hear, that exists. That's, that's not where I would want to, you know, it's just not me. I'm just saying, dress for the occasion. Dress for the occasion. Common sense should prevail. I'm not here to force my convictions, my standards, my preferences upon you and your home. And I understand that we are all at different levels of spiritual growth. There are people that have no issue with the dress standard, and yet they're harlots. Dress does not reveal the heart. Now, if you want my opinion, I'll give it to you. Otherwise, I pray that the Holy Spirit will guide you. I never told my wife how to dress. She asked me a question once about it, and I said, that's between you and the Holy Spirit. If I tell you what I want, you're going to do it for me. And it's not going to last. You're going to grow bitter. You do what the Holy Spirit leads you to do. Now, obviously, if she took that the other direction and ended up being a floosie, I would tell her, amen. <laughs> However, when ministering in here under my authority, what's wrong with one keeping the thighs covered to the knee when they stand to minister in the church in an attempt to honor God? Now, why does that cause so many issues? Why do people so quickly bow up against dress standards? It always seems to happen against churches, but never places of employment. For example, my daughter started a new job last week, and where, they, where she works, they have a dress standard. I think it's a pretty strict standard. So much so, she had to go buy more clothes. And she's been in church since the womb. <laughs> What's interesting is, church came up, and spiritual things always come up at work, and Sydney said she attended Liberty Baptist Tabernacle. Some lady said, isn't that the church where ladies are expected to dress a certain way? Now, of course, that's not true. We have never told anybody they can't be in here because of how they're dressed. We, we've never done that. And I think this might have been from decades ago. I don't know. But that's how much it stuck with them. Think about this with me, if you will, please. She made that statement as if it was a terrible thing while working for an institution 
that required her to have a dress standard that is more strict than ours. But where is the animosity against the place of employment? You see, oh, that's the church where you have to dress. You're working at a place where they're telling you to dress a certain way. Now, I reckon those who resist a dress standard are going to be off to a bad start when we get to glory. Because God has a dress standard for us all. We're going to be in white robes. I don't like these robes. We'll go talk to God about it. Now, I really didn't want this issue to dominate the service, but I'm just trying to be obedient to the Lord. Where I was building up to this is when the Bible says Peter was naked, it doesn't mean that he's in his birthday suit here. But sometimes in the Bible, when a person's outer garments are off, the term naked is used. This work that Peter was engaged in would have been very laborious, is very hot. Uh, no doubt he would have been encumbered with some of these outer garments and having worked up a sweat and maybe even sweating profusely, you can imagine, guys, and maybe some gals, that you would want to start taking off some of those outer garments so that you're not sweating to death. I'm ready for fall. Amen. 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 And so uh, you can imagine that. And, and so um, he took off his fisher's coat to not be so hot. I'd imagine we've all done something like this to some extent. I, I would think so. Listen, I'm not going to mow the yard in 90-degree weather in my suit. Neither am I going to get up here and preach in my shorts and t-shirts because I want to have reverence behind the pulpit. Dress for the occasion. Now, ladies, I realize in our culture, you've got the short end of the stick. But when you come before God to sing or play an instrument, there ought to be the recognition that you are standing as God's representative before the people, and attention should be upon the Lord and not your revealed body. Now, I, I said that to say this. I believe this is why Peter reacts the way he does. When Simon heard it was the Lord, he girt his fisher's coat unto him, and he did cast himself into the sea. Now, the scene I kind of get in my mind is that Peter wasn't really too focused about who was on the seashore because it was only after Simon heard that it was the Lord, he girt his coat, and he jumped into the sea. Why does he wrap himself with his coat and then jump in? Isn't that odd? I mean, if you're jumping in to hide your nakedness, why did you even put the coat around you to jump in? Well, for what it's worth, most commentators are of the opinion that Peter jumped in because he's trying to be the first to get to the Lord. Well, that's an interesting thought because he could get there a lot faster swimming than he could in the boat. But then some people say, why would he be swimming with his fisher's coat? That's going to be more difficult to swim. I don't know if we know for sure, but I appreciate what Matthew Henry had to say. Would you listen to what he said? Quote, he showed his respect to Christ by girding his fisher's coat about him that he might appear before his master in the best clothes he had than to rudely rush into his presence stripped as he was. End quote. The thought is, Peter wanted to appear before Jesus with respect and reverence. And I believe that ought to be our desire when we come before the Lord. And that's really the goal with the ministry standard. It's not because I'm a, I'm a mean guy and I want to make every woman mad at me. No. I live with two women. Well, my daughter and my wife. Okay. <laughs> Let's move on. They enclosed a great multitude of fish in their net. And I love the scene that we have in our text. Look at verse 9. As soon as they were come to land, they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid on and bread. 
Remember, these men had been brought to a place where they needed provision. Jesus tells them, cast on the right side. They enclose a great multitude of fishes. But just as soon as they come to land, they find that Jesus has prepared a fire and He's prepared bread and fish and it's ready to eat. They were brought to a need and before they even dragged the net all the way in, they find the Lord already knew what the need was. And the fish that Jesus prepared, it wasn't from their catch because in verse 10, Jesus said, bring of the fish which ye have now caught. And in verse 11, Simon drew the net uh, fully in and it was full of great fishes, 153 in number. And there's no reason to try to find a spiritual reason for 153. Uh, some people do. And that's fine if you're in that group, such as the, the gospel represents the multitudes that are going to be reached. And that's what this multitude of fishes is. Whatever, if that's you. If you want to make that application, that's fine. But I believe it's simply this. Fishermen like records. It's what fishermen do. They record what they've caught. This is bragging rights, amen? Can you see it now? So there I was. Where were you, John? I was on the Sea of Tiberias. We were casting all night. We didn't catch anything. The Lord showed up, cast on the right side. We hauled in 153 fish, great fish at that. This is stuff of legend. This is what fishermen boast about. And so as John is pinning this account, he remembers, yeah, boy, we caught a lot of fish that day. In fact, we caught so many, we counted those things. There was 153 fish. Also, listen, I think it's as simple as this. They're commercial fishermen. They're going to sell this stuff. Be nice to know what you're selling. Verse 12, Jesus says, come and dine. They all knew it was Jesus by this point. Verse 13, Jesus gives them bread and fish. He prepared for them. I'm trying to hurry. I'm sorry. There's many applications we can make from this text, but I'm out of time. Let me just draw out a few. Nobody got that? Let me draw out a few. <laughs> Jesus brought them to a need. Jesus met their need. But make sure you consider this. The Lord who allowed a full net in the morning was the same Lord who allowed the empty net all night. God may have you experience some empty nets before He gives you the full net. Listen, God has a purpose in both. I may not always have the best counsel to give you. I don't understand why. Sometimes you're going through what you're going through. But I know this. The God of the full nets, the same God of the empty net. He knows what He's doing. You just need to trust Him. We also see that before the blessing, they had to come to the place where they were empty. If we would know our Lord's overflowing benefits of His provision, we must come to Him empty and needy, acknowledging that without Him we can do nothing. The problem with the Laodicean church was they thought they had need of nothing. And as a result, they couldn't see what they had really become. The Bible says in Revelation 3, 17 and 18, Because thou sayest... I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable, poor, blind and naked. I counsel of thee to buy gold, try in the fire that thou mayest be rich and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, that thy shame of the nakedness does not appear and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. We must admit that we are needy people and that only God can meet our need if we're ever going to see a full net. We must hunger and thirst after righteousness. Then we'll be filled. And finally, I want you to see the Lord desires fellowship with you. 
Isn't that precious? He has everything prepared for you to come and dine. You just need to accept His invitation. If you're lost today, our Lord has already made the way for you to have your needs met. He's provided the way of salvation in the cross. He has provided the means to be cleansed through His blood. You just need to accept the invitation to come and dine with the Savior. He's all you need. John 6, 55 and 56, Jesus said, For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. To believers, we must continue to answer His invitation to come and dine. He provided the means of us staying cleansed and sanctified through His blood and His Word. We can continue this process by being faithful to church and being faithful to the Word of God. We just need to accept His invitation to fellowship with Him. Jesus desires for all of us to come and dine with Him. And one day in eternity, we're literally going to sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb and we're going to eat with our Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to ask you this morning as I hustle here right now, listen, are you in close fellowship with the Lord? Are you in fellowship with Him? Are Are you sitting with Him and dining? If you've never entered into a relationship with the Lord, you can right now. You just need to call upon Him for salvation. If you are saved, but you are out of fellowship with Him, you can be restored to a right relationship by confessing your sinfulness to Him and being cleansed of all your unrighteousness. Over there to the Laodicean church, Jesus said in Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. So I wonder if Jesus is knocking on anyone's door today to come in and dine with you. Don't refuse Him any longer. You have a need, and He's the only one who can meet that need. And as I close, I want to say to our campers this week, our Lord is saying to you, come and dine. But it's up to you to accept the invitation. Would you pray with me, please?